Welcome to the Stack, the Public Procurement Podcast. Today, uh, myself and Willem, we're going to be chatting about uh, proportionality the Dutch way and best practices for edited volumes. Welcome to Bestek, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andhoff discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestek. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello. Hey, good to be back. <laughs> good to be back. Hopefully with a better audio than our last episode. Oh, it was fantastic audio, right? We'll let, we'll let others be the judge of that. Well, that's not what I heard from you. But um, we right now, I'm <laughs> I'm in a proper recording studio. So I'm really hoping that uh, the uh, listeners will hear the difference. Um, so yeah, good to see you, Willem, again. We we taking today a little bit different sort of spin on things. Um, as you heard in the title, um, we, were talking, we will be talking today about proportionality the Dutch way. So sort of speak, are we giving a spotlight, a highlight to particular national approach to certain procurement aspect where um, as a, a sort of more extensive development has been taking place and maybe the rest of us can take some inspiration, learn something out of it and so on and so forth. So um, without further ado, Willem, could I kindly ask you, could you tell us why proportionality um, or, or, or what we're actually talking about, this proportionality guide, what is it? Um, what role it plays? Um, of course, let's, um, let's start from the beginning. Um, and also why I like talking about these things, because I always find there's lots of like funny stuff happening in the member states, not saying that this is a funny topic, by the way, <laughs> but like this, it's uh, it's just, I think the, the pleasure of being part of like a scholarly community that discusses EU law, which is, you know, at the level of the, of, of, of the EU, of course. Uh, but then also you have this aspect of implementation, but also like national legislative actions that come on top or slightly alter, et cetera, the, the EU context. So it'd be interesting to see if this will, um, if the discussion that we have today, or perhaps not the discussion, but the guide itself will have some effects also beyond the Dutch borders. Because um, I think when we talk about proportionality in the EU context, we're really talking about the link to the subject matter of the contract. Think of things like the Concordia bus case by the Court of Justice. Um, and proportionality often, particularly in the EU context, when we talk about the uh, 2014 directives, was often framed in, uh, in a way to achieve access for small and medium-sized enterprises because mm. those, that, such access would be limited. Just to piggyback to, to to what you're saying in the European context, just maybe to sort of use the... European law language. So what are we talking about if we're talking about proportionality? Proportionality is a principle. We we have that as a general EU law concept and, and the test that we apply, right? Which means whatever you do uh, to making sure that only the necessary um, scale of actions are being taken. And, and we apply this, uh, this proportionality test to assess whether, for example, a any type of restriction that is being applied or justification can fulfill this proportionality uh, test. Is, is that fair to say? 
Yeah, of course. So we're in Article 18, uh, not two that we like to discuss, but Section <laughs> 1. For the um, first time, right? If I remember correctly, actually, the proportionality is included yep. as a principle, even that before um, this directive, of course, it has been referred to. Yeah, and you see the, the the EU legislator in multiple provisions trying to make sure that SMEs have access. Mm. And we saw a similar discussion in the Dutch context. Um, when the Dutch Public Procurement Act, the 2012 Act, uh, we still call it 2012, but implementation of the new directives happened afterwards. So why that's relevant is because the revision of the Dutch Public Procurement Act which was sparked by a massive uh, um, competition law issues in the construction sector at the start of the, the, the new millennium, basically happens in, in conjunction with each other. So the EU directives were revised and the Dutch Public Procurement Act was revised. And a very similar objective popped up, accessed for SMEs. Mm. And um, th this means that the Dutch Public Procurement Act contains many references to proportionality that... Um, above and below the thresholds, the principle is is applied. And what does that mean? Is that contracting authorities or entities active in the in the utility sectors need to at least, and I'm going to quote a list right now, take into account um, uh, proportionality, say for uh, award criteria, uh, deadlines or timelines, uh, exclusion grounds, merging or not merging. Uh, um, uh, different uh, type of co contracts together. So is this just an individual contract for catering services or is it going to be support services all together with mm -hmm. IT and HR services together? Um, but also things like um, the conditions of the agreement or uh, the, the, the tender rebate that you might receive. So because you've had to make lots of cost to, to submit a tender or a bid, you might get compensated for that. So, uh, but that's all still the Procurement Act. Mm -hmm. So so predominantly, do I understand you correctly, that um, a jury debate around the principle of proportionality really in Dutch context usually refers back to this general notion of access for SMEs? Yeah, or at least that was the, the, the initial objective, mm -hmm. is that um, the, these SMEs were met with disproportionate requirements, disproportionate conditions and criteria, and that in a general sense, this hindered them from participating in uh, in public tenders. Sure. I think proportionality is also is quite interesting because a version of proportional, proportionality principle, I think it's not, you know, purely anyhow, European law kind of concept. All the legal system have some sort of versions of proportionality principles of reasonable, reasonableness. English is a difficult language today. Um, in the system, right? So I think it's also about how this mixture between a sort of na national legal tradition and the approach to proportionality principle is somehow merged with uh, this more uh, European approach, uh, particularly also in public procurement. But let's go back then to a guide, because as you mentioned, um, what what until now you told us is very much within the Procurement Act. When the guide comes into play, so what the guide is, what is sort of speak legal standing or what is its function in 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 procurement sort of arena in Netherlands? So we have the Public Procurement Act, and then 
at the time, the minister came up with this idea, a very Dutch approach to many issues in society is what we call bolderen. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, Maybe I don't this could be so. the second Dutch word. So we have bestek already. Let's go yeah. for bolderen. Mm-hmm. I feel like I would need to start learning some of the words from the many languages that you speak as well. <laughs> but for, because we're talking about a Dutch guide, let's sure. talk about bolderen. Um, I won't be able to be to be entirely exhaustive about what it means, but it means uh, to a certain extent consensus-based decision-making. And that means taking into account a lot of perspectives in society and then coming to a consensus there. It's also reflected in our political system. We don't have one party rule. We have multiple okay. parties. But also when we see um, uh, things like uh, discussions about competition law, Mm-hmm. You see that many of those are private initiatives trying to foster sustainability uh, considerations, say farmers, supermarkets, uh, the local governments, NGOs coming together to say, hey, we don't want to produce really fatty chickens anymore, right? Mm-hmm. We want to do that differently, which then leads to potential conflict and competition. It's a quite democratic and inclusive approach to legal interpretation or application or so. Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. it, I, I'm I'm not sure if democratic would be the right word okay. because, in a way, you kind of take out a certain part of legal representation, right? Because it's not like a bill being proposed, discussed in parliament. Okay. It would be like all a lot of representative bodies in society coming up with a way of how they would want to work. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's interesting though is that, and that's where you're totally right about using that word, is that. With the proportionality guide, it kind of started to mix a bit. What happened was, is that this guide was set up and written by a writing group, a schrijfgroep, with representatives from contracting authorities and representatives from the market. And what the purpose was, is to come up with a solution for these disproportionate conditions uh, that could be subscribed by both sides of the procurement process, right? Because the idea would be, if all entities, all both sides of the coin would be happy with this guide, it would actually be implemented and it would lead to an improvement of practices. What then happened though, is that it was made into a ministerial decree, which meant that the uh, proportionality guide is a bit, or the, the wording guide is a bit misleading. Okay. Because um, it, it's uh, actually binding, binding law. So when you talk about the Procurement uh, Act and the guide both need to be taken into account when you uh, when you procure on the market. Can we geek a little bit uh, for a second? Because this is actually you didn't something... you, you you thought we weren't geeking yet. But this is right now. <laughs> I think that we might for a second lose some of our practitioners, okay. right. um, Your fault. listeners. Keep going. Yeah, I just I just because this is sort of a little bit in totally different. Um, context, but what I'm looking at it here in Australia, and I would want to just get a little bit of clarification for you. So when we say that Procurement Act is binding, and you're saying is a you know Parliament uh, approved uh, sort of voted in legal act, what what is the difference when then you have a ministerial kind of order, so executive order? How that applies in context of bind? Is it exactly binding? the same way what is the sort of legal nature of a difference between the two kind of not from the perspective of a decision making process how the law came to be but from a perspective of actually then applying it yeah so um it, it you're right i think the main difference is how does it come to be 
Um, I think it's also very member state specific mm. or country specific. What because the word if you, when you look at the comparison between between executive orders that say the the, the Biden administration in the US yeah, can yeah, course, give sure. is totally very different, different to what yeah, a ministerial yeah. decree and an algemene maatregel van bestuur as we call it in the Netherlands. Um, basically, the main difference here is that just simply the Public Procurement Act already notes that there will be a guide. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that this guide will have binding force. Okay. Um, so I think that's, in, in this case, without getting too nerdy about, yeah, yeah. I know so you comes, wanted to get geeky. No, no, but I get um, it. So it comes from the act, actually act, include, exactly. in, introduce, it includes a reference. But before we yep. go any further, and I might ask you for some of your uh, kind of more opinions around all of this, I think it's also fair to... Um, to to give you a chance to to on the one hand side acknowledge the great participation in this whole com- committee around this guide that you that you have that also for an academic a great recognition of your achievements, but also I'm guessing you kind of need to provide a certain disclaimer at this point. Yes, of course. Um, so uh, um, b- before we start buckling down on the contents, yeah, exactly. Um, in uh, in September, I was appointed as chair of the advisory committee, um, and what what happened throughout the course of time is we had this writing group, but because it became a ministerial decree, uh, and because the minister wanted to keep this writing group involved, but because of it becoming binding, uh, the position of this writing group turned into an advisory committee. And the advisory committee can advise on changes of this proportionality guide at their own discretion, but also if the ministry would ask such a such a, an advisory opinion. Um, and from September onwards, I'll am chairing this committee. Um, what we're seeing, though, from this uh, this committee is um, that there's also a lot of discussion in other member states about this guide, which I thought why it would be interesting to. Uh, to dis, uh, discuss this today, but obviously when we discuss it, I'm not representing the committee in any sense. This is me as an academic, but I just wanted to be honest and, and also disclose that there is um, uh, that I'm also involved in this guide myself. Yeah, which is also a congrats again. I think it's a great recognition. So um, you have your hands on sort of in, 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 in this area, which is, I think, really great. Um, okay, so let's then, we, we learned a little bit kind of what it is, where it comes from, how it is related to the general procurement law, um, that it has the binding power. The only other question around the binding power that I wanted to ask, is it binding on all levels to everyone or is one of those acts that is, you know, only to central government and so on? So in the beginning, um, when it was discussed in Parliament, there was a bit of confusion about whether utilities, you know, entities active in the utility sectors would also be included, but they've been explicitly included. So it applies to all contracting authorities mm-hmm. active in uh, that that would also be uh, falling under the Dutch Public Procurement Act. When you say binding, because we've mentioned the word a couple of times already, yeah. um, it, it's, 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 it's binding, mm-hmm. but... It's something that's taken a bit of flight, I think, in a lot of Dutch legal areas. It's this thing that we've started to call comply or explain. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that because for me, you know, from my legal, from my legal culture, that's not binding. If you cannot sort of challenge in a court, there is no sort of, how is that binding? So that's, that's lovely. We have kind of, as you know, I think in context of something different in Denmark, also there are some of this compliance. I think in many member states, a version of that um, arise, yep. particularly also around division to lots and things like that. So, yeah. So what that means then, this compliance and explain, um, because uh, just not to hijack uh, your 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 uh, line of thought, but in practice, what we hear time and time again right now in context of this ex, um, explain if you didn't apply it is that unfortunately it can be that a blueprints of explanation are being created and just being submitted. So I just wonder um, before we go more into detail, have there been any that you're aware or you discuss? Um, with your colleagues anyhow, have there been any actual sort of follow-up on situations when this explanation was not um, enough or or not provided to enough of a detail? Yeah, so in general, we see, um, or maybe one step back. So the system Sorry. is, the rules are, no, 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 but, but I'll come back to your valid point. The system is you comply, and if you don't comply with the rules of these, um, this guide, you need to motivate right and the the concept of that is is that also procurement is not stagnant it's you in this sense for proportionality it's not one size fits all sometimes there's there's some general rules that you can come up with but it's also about tailor making procedures to which many of these rules would be relevant and useful and should also be applied but there are also cases in which it's very relevant to to, to, to deviate, right? Yeah, to exceptions. explain why you won't yeah. be doing that. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the system. And when you mentioned also like division into, into lots, that's also in the Netherlands, we have that. And you see the same there, is that it's litigated, you can take it to court. Mm-hmm. Um, but particularly in, in terms of that division into contracts, the, the main um, discussion point there is, okay, if you just state that... You know, we took this into account. We just considered all the relevant aspects, but we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think, a separate debate from the from the guide. Okay. Because when you look at the guide, um, the general impression in the public procurement world, including lawyers, including public purchasing bodies, professionals, the market, it's well received, and me, and that means that it's had an impact in practice. Uh, the courts have also worked with it, of course, because they're binding rules, and the courts use it for their interpretation of uh, of, of of cases, right? And to to provide solutions for cases. So, um, even though comply or explain has that aspect, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes it can it can raise alarm bells where you think like this is not a binding law; they can deviate. But I think one of the prerequisites then is is that the the communal forces of public of the public procurement context want to apply it and see value in applying it. Mm. Yeah, because uh, also yeah. I think it's worth of underlying that um, there is English version of of the guidelines, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, we would make sure to somehow target also somewhere in our episode um, sort of structure on our website. So go check it out. Um, but the reason why I mention that is because I had a chance to obviously look through it. And um, from that perspective, I think why it might be that is welcome is because it, so to speak, puts a bit more bones on the 
legislative corpse, if 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 if, if we kind of uh, uh, can describe it in that way. So I think it's sort of helpful, right? Is assisting in decision making process. So that's probably also uh, why that is so. So can you yep. then, uh, Willem, guide us a little bit through what is actually in that guide, what we will find in that guide? So you will um, find in general rules, I think I should say so, uh, but those are also copies um, of what the Dutch Public Procurement Act says. So the binding rules that are already in the Procurement Act there's context to what that would mean in terms of proportionality, and then there's specific rules for schriften. And if we're if you wanted to, if you're allowed to get geeky, also get geeky. <laughs> it's also one of the first, um, or the first, I should say, acts that was published in the Dutch Gazette, which announces new rules, that is in color. Yeah, the traffic lights, right? Exactly. So, I really like it. <laughs> uh, it's not just um, the, the the colors in the box. I, it, it relates, obviously, that it wasn't necessarily written from the get-go as something that was to be published in the Gazette. Or as a right? law, or, law, really, right? Exactly. Um, so you see general rules. Also, I, I find, and it's, it's a very interesting exercise as well, is because much much of the text is far more accessible to practice. It's because it's written as a guide and yeah. not as something that lawyers have pondered over for years and months and have tried to buckle down on each word, right? And it's almost um, uh, suggestive that probably in writing that other people than lawyers have been involved, right? <laughs> that it is actually exactly. uh, yeah. user-friendly. Perhaps. And I'm not saying that all laws are not <laughs> user-friendly or that this that the, the, the guide is not discussed and, and that there's questions that have come up about interpretation before the courts. But um, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how this has changed practice and that these uh, a very different way of ultimately legislating has come up um, in the in the Dutch uh, Dutch context, um, but when you talk about traffic lights, maybe what we could do is also because what I'd love to hear from our listeners from this episode is also what they think of this guide, of course, uh, but also um, if it helps them in their own context or if it leads to um, to 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 discussions or if it wouldn't fit in practice there, because I think what would be interesting is also. Um, the question, is it just the EU legislator mm -hmm. that makes the rules that then trickle down onto the member states and that we just have to accept? Or could it also be that national rules inspire EU law or other member states? You see some type of convergence there sometimes. Um, well, I think but of that's course the that case, right? Don't you think that that's the case? I think that that um, you have all these various networks of, you know, central purchasing bodies, and um, I'm aware of a European network of food procurers and so on. So this yep. sort of at least practices of, and I think the practices very often are also about interpretation, right? So you you see time and time again that you know you would say something like, I think first time that I heard. Um, about, you know, seasonality in food procurement. Someone said, no, no, that definitely that will be localism. You cannot do it. And then you hear someone else interpreting the rule and sort of showing how you can make that criteria objective and verifiable and so on and so forth. So I think that for sure. So who knows? Maybe we'll get a more 
guide, European guide on proportionality inspired by um, Netherlands and, and, and your practices. But can I then yeah, just... Who knows? Yeah? I mean, sorry, just one more yeah. thing about this also, because I think it's like, even if it's... I'm not necessarily advocating that there should be European guide, right? But, you know, if it happens, interesting. Uh, more to fast to discuss, I suppose. Um, but also this, the, the, the national experiences that can also shape... Uh, Con or at least new rules on the EU level. So mm. you and I have also been heavily involved in discussing mandatory requirements in a sustainability context. And this is also one of the solutions that's been posed, right? Um, in, the, um, in, in the forthcoming book um, that Roberto Caranta and I have been editing, Fredo Schotanus, a colleague, and um, uh, Ruben Nicolas also advocate for this, right? They basically say the rules shouldn't be too binding you know, when it comes to sustainability. We should have a comply or explain uh, provision when it comes to sustainability. So in a way, what could be interesting is to also gather, um, and this is purely selfish because I would be very interested to see how this works in Data. other member states, is mm -hmm. like, what are really the effects um, it seems to be going well for the proportionality guide, but what are the effects of comply explain in, in other member states? Yeah, like I'm saying, the one that I kind of heard um, when it's a little bit more on more negative side is that, and, and that's where I mean that it sort of requires a little bit more um, enforcement or a revision, uh, is that in certain areas, in certain sectors, in particular member states, or uh, local sort of uh, scene of procurement, you have the situation that you just kind of develop a blueprint of a clause saying, yeah, we consider that, yeah, we cannot apply it type of thing. Yep. And and I, I think that this type of approach, um, you know, if, it, if you get something like that, I guess it's maybe not the best, but it's also probably depending what it considers, right? I'm in general, I'm not fan of the rules being overly prescriptive this, and, and sort of tying hands of the contracting authorities. I think that there needs to be trust in the fact that they know what they're doing. But we, yep. of course, also need to somehow counteract the, the or, or sort of secure against the bad behaviors. Um, the last um, maybe words in regards of the on the general discussion, because we mentioned this traffic lights um, twice right now. Can you just, Willem, in two, three sentences, explain to us how that is used in the guide and for what purpose? Yes, so um, maybe to also bring like the guide a bit more to, to life because we talked a bit about how it came about, what the structure is, mm. um, and, and this, this, this traffic light or stoplicht aspect, it doesn't really do it justice, because, and I'll explain that in a second, but if we look at, say, rule 3.4a, right? It's the one that's been discussed in Dutch practice quite a lot. And basically that rule states the following. And I know I'm never allowed to read anything out loud, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it states, <laughs> the contracting authority shall review per contract which procurement procedure is suitable and proportional, whereby it shall in any event take account of the following effect, uh, aspects. So when choosing a procedure, you need to look at the size of the contract, transaction costs for contracting authority and the tenderer, number of potential tenderers, desired end results, complexity, type of contract, characteristics of the market. Right? So mm -hmm. these, as a rule, Dutch contracting authorities need to take into account these criteria. Mm -hmm. Now, to assist in this, 
the value of the contract or the size of the contract also matters, right? Yeah. So that's where this color scheme has, has been put into the guide. And basically, it means that when we talk about financial value, the, the, there's a, uh, a green bit, an orange bit, and a red bit, in which it seems that in a, for a value under 30,000, you can use a direct award. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's how but proportionality kind of come in place. In exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, and this is what I should stress, because there's often also confusion in practice on this, is that it's merely an indicator. Mm. Right. Again, it's complier explained. All these criteria need to be taken into account. The these aspects, and that's why I don't necessarily like the traffic light analogy, even though I yeah. understand it because it yeah. has the colors. The red doesn't. It, if you can explain it based on all the factors, perhaps the red could still be okay. Yeah, I understand what you mean. But at the same time, it's I think a good sort of visual also of indicator because we will be talking about you know visual aspects of public procurement sometime soon. Uh, giving a bit yep. of a spoiler uh, um, here. Visual contracting, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think that this sort of visual indication here is also somehow assisting because at least it sort of should raise, maybe not necessarily a flag, but awareness, right? So I, I kind of, the way uh, that I see it is it's a little bit indicative of scale of risk, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, the red, when the red comes in, the risk is the highest of, you know, sort of negative consequences. But as you said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot do it, is that you need to be quite careful in how to do it. But um, at the same time, is it fair to say that this is quite positive from a perspective that if you are in a green, that that somehow reassures you as a contracting authority that what you're doing, sure. like, so to, so to speak, decreases the level of legal uncertainty, whether your choices are adequate or not. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and of course, on top of that, where most discussion is, is when the colors start to change. Yeah, yeah. Right? The, the when borders colors merge. Always, so there's, right? Yeah, so there's, there's legal certainty, but also legal uncertainty. Um, and I think the same relates to the the second um, rule that I thought of highlighting. It's 3.9a on risk allocation. It it has my personal liking because I find risk allocation a cool topic. Fascinating. Um, yeah. I'll also be writing about it with our third Dutch host, uh, Matanya Pinto, for your book that's coming. Um, I see this like picture of um, Oprah in my head right now. You get an edited volume. You get an edited volume. You write in mine. I'll we write in yours. We also do a yeah. lot of shameless plugs in this episode. <laughs> well, are they sh- well, anyways, I, we talked about this before, though, is that I do think that like um, you've got to put up the streamers in your own life for your own party, right? <laughs> Others won't be doing it. Uh, That's perhaps. true. And also for public engagement. So I... I tend to disagree. Okay, fair uh, that enough. That I think sh- the word, and we're deviating a bit, but like the word shameless self-plug, if you do it for the purpose of like spurring debate and linking things and making it more accessible, I don't think we should be using that. But anyways, fair you enough. can keep using it. Was, it. it was just in the form of sort of, har- it, it was intended as a notion of harmless fun, but fair enough, I, agree, <laughs> I, I, understand, I understand your point. Moving on. Okay, now <laughs> I feel bad risk. for like, Going into it more deeply, but anyways, we're talking about risk Risk allocation allocation. and and the the guide says the contracting authority should allocate the risk to the party which can best manage uh, effects of the risk, right? So is it the the tenderer or is it the contracting authority that should be 
um, uh, carrying the burden of risk. And again, this is further explicated is because the act states that at least when you weigh up risks and the allocation of it, you need to think about the chance that a risk will actually realize itself. So whether it will effectuate and the consequences of that risk and mm. the size of it. Because if it can, if it's barely foreseeable, say, it's uh, perhaps unfair to put that on the shoulders of a tenderer, right? And just to palm off risk to, to the, the contracting party. Um, and also the question of, is it in insurable? And the guide then says, like, there's a common misconception that everything is insurable, right? Because mm. if you can insure it, perhaps the risk is not there. I mean, the risk is there, but the, the effects is, are it's relatively well limited. It's well-managed risk if there is an insurance, I guess, or presumption exactly. of it. Mm -hmm. And that has something to do, I think, with also foreseeability, right? Because many insured, insurers either would ask a lot of money if a risk is not foreseeable, or they won't even insure it, right? So they're a bit linked. And I think what's interesting here is also it's it, it, this has also been assessed by the courts, and say for a, for a tender for youth care um, by the court of the Hague, it, it meant that in a in in this case the um, procedure was struck out because basically insufficient information about the size of the care that was to be provided. Um, there was insufficient. Uh, due care related to the budget ceilings, and that led ultimately also to the discussion of that, you know, this was a disproportionate division of risk because there were also unlimited damages claims that could have been, uh, could have been uh, claimed. So what, what the courts actually do is they basically also, and this is where it gets interesting, they, they state that, you know, in the contract or the way this is set up or how this procedure turns out, um, this is a, illegitimate division of risks mm. right and ultimately what's interesting i think that's also you know beneficial for um, for the contracting authorities not just gain access for smes right that would be able to carry or at least the assumption would be is that they would be able to carry less risk um, because of their size uh, but also it's far more manageable for contracting authorities because you know they they don't run the risk that a tender or a contract goes belly up so um, as you can see, and that's I think the main takeaway is that also the the rules and the, the context that the guide gives get quite specific about how to tackle issues of proportionality in uh, in public procurement. So to round up our main um, as a as a as a main sort of you know uh, subject of procurement related issue, um, can I ask you, um, Willem, could you point out where you think the main added advantage very briefly of the guide in Netherlands have been for what it mainly has been praised and what is some um like a one not necessarily minus but one aspect that still sort of raises question what could be improved potentially you know where we can come from uh, from from here um as the two sort of main aspects so we can round up our main today um yeah very good question actually um, I think ultimately is because the, the the concept and the contents of the the, the the guide have improved public procurement practices because of the way it's set up, because of who's written it, uh, and because many agree that a lot of disproportionate conditions, criteria are not visible in practice anymore. Mm. Um, 
there's still, I think, um, room for discussion. And for that, I'd also like to point to um, a relatively recent article in Public Procurement Law Review from a colleague of mine, Chris Janssen, non-related, 1S, very important to people with Janssen <laughs> as a last name, at um, at the VU, Amsterdam. Uh, it, it's an interesting read, stretching the proportionality principle, how Dutch law facilitates the participation of SMEs in public procurement. So in that sense, I think there's also just an interesting discussion about how the Dutch way fits within the EU law context um, and how it relates to the the principle of procurement uh, in a broad sense. So for, I'd like to just give a shout out to that article. Um, and like you said, let's upload the, um, or at least provide a reference to the link of the English version. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you so much, Willem, for that. Um, and with that, we moving on to the lighter part, or at least principle, <laughs> principally lighter part of our podcast, and that's the dessert. So to... Uh, remind any potential new listeners that's where we're diving into some aspect of more of our academic life more broadly than related to public procurement. And having in mind that it already has been mentioned um, also within this episode that both uh, Willem and myself have been uh, working on uh, edited volumes, anthologies, um, and what those are. Those are a type of book that um, have a sort of leading investigator that tries to, so to speak, push the, uh, or two or three, uh, push the certain agenda, try, try to make a group of people come together and contribute to that book. But a majority of the, of the contribution, the chapters are written by different authors. So that's often when we see a type of comparative books in in public procurement area um, when lo- when they look on various member states and different practices. We're working uh, currently both of us on uh, on the new one coming, the one that Willem leads with Professor Caranta that already have been mentioned is coming a bit sooner than the other one that 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 I'm working on. But we thought that that can be also a good moment to try to discuss and maybe share some challenges uh, for those who are to come into that role. Um, that it's good to have in mind if you want to embark on the on the journey of editing a volume, but also some good practices, what have been working in our experiences to sort of share um, some information that we think could be helpful if we would listen to our podcast uh, and, and, and hear about it before we decided to embark on those journey. So, Willem, let's uh, start uh, on less positive note and finish on positive note. So let's 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 start first with what are some of the challenges of editing volume? What do you think? If you would sort of to identify um, maybe two or three, what are the challenges? How is it different to, you know, doing a research on your own, publishing your own book, which you have, uh, which you had, sorry, or article? How is yep. that different? I would say um, two things are linked. I think particularly as an editor, you're conflicted between being grateful that people participate in the project and that they're willing to commit time, knowledge, thoughts, etc., to this project, which ultimately will also benefit them, right? Because mm-hmm. they're part of this project, they get a publication, hopefully at a nice publishing house. 
Um, so you're grateful, but you're also a project manager. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to make sure that one, the content is coherent, that things link up with each other, that there's no double bits, right? That, you know, all the different perspectives are discussed. And of course, it doesn't need to be super defined, but you don't want multiple chapters doing the same thing no, or taking the same perspective. So, uh, and on top of that, you also want things to be delivered on time. Right. So you're grateful, but you're also needing to be, make sure that the project comes on time um, and that the contents align, mm -hmm. right? And that sometimes requires a sort of a, a balance of, you know, being strict, but still being kind. And that's very difficult, particularly also when you come across different cultures, different ways of you know, dealing with hierarchies. So I think that's something that I find is a very tricky balance as yeah. an editor to, to start off with. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's spot on. I would, I would very much support the points that you made. I think um, one of our uh, colleague uh, that is in, in, in years uh, of experience a bit older than us, um, she at some point mentioned you know, editing a volume as a, as an editor or co-editor is a bit like, you know, managing kindergarten. You just need to make sure that everyone after the first three minutes still want to play the same game. And I think that that's a kind of cute um, analogy because it's yeah. true. It's uh, I think that from my perspective, the main challenge, particularly if you're working on something that is quite innovative, and I think uh, that innovative innovativeness can come from different perspectives. It can be method of working that is a little bit different. I think with the project with Roberto, the way how you went methodologically through the steps, it was a little bit different, which was great. But it was, you know, I think for many people that participate in that project, probably for the first time doing it that way. Or if you're trying to really, you know, work on something that requires collaborative work, which means that you just not write your chapter and submitted, but there is some sort of discussion, maybe someone else externally also yep. in, is to provide input. That that all kind of requires that it's not only the first, so to speak, five minutes of excitement about the project, but for the longer time, you need to kind of make sure that everyone still is interested, in it, is on board, sees the value of it, and everyone needs to kind of play to the same um, corner. No, a f terrible football analogy to the same... What you like football? What is the thing that you kick ball to? I, I have actually, I'm I'm lost. I'm not trying to do. I, I don't know, but I <laughs> understand what you're trying you to. Okay. What you're try, well, I, I can see what you're trying okay. to say, and I think go. our listeners Thank you. do let's, as well. Let's do it that way. But let's yeah. just say in Dutch. I don't know if you can say it in English. Is to keep all noses in the same direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I fully subscribe to that, and I think it's a very tricky balance, and that's why I think also to kind of be. To, to keep being kind, I think process is really important. Mm. Is to make sure that the process that people sign up for is very clear from the start. Because to be honest, it is difficult. And also it's generally, um, so for our book, we did it relatively quickly, but it's still going to be about one and a half to one to three quarters of a year mm, that it takes that this process took right mm. from the initial invite or from if i would take the part where we s contacted the publisher that's even earlier mm. so that's it takes quite a long time and i find that clarity about process what's expected when do you need to submit when do you do and also as an editor that you commit to doing quick reviews is to say yeah you do it there i do my share so we're really working together whereas um, you know, in, in the broader context, what's what's often difficult, and I fully also 
empathize with this because if I'm on the receiving end, right, mm. um, or if I'm participating in an edited volume, it's also then you're more trying to balance all these things. It's not your 100 main priority because you're not in charge of getting the book across the finish line. Yeah. So I can I, I empathize with it as well. Yeah, and I would just want to highlight one more, I think, challenge um, that probably is, you know, the biggest one, I think, and that is thinking before you um, embark on such a journey, what to do and how to handle the worst case scenario. And what I mean by that is that often you're going to um, go and do those uh, edited volumes with your dear colleagues or, uh, you know, your heroes um, in, in your professional life and so on and so forth. And you may have a really great relationships with them. And Rarely, but sometimes it might happen that absolutely worst case scenario happens, which is someone committed to something and they don't deliver or they drop out middle through the way or it's just the 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 quality is not where it's supposed to. The commitment is not there. And I think that this is extremely stressful also for the first time if you edit the, a volume or also if you kind of, you sure. know, hierarchically again, you so to speak, a lower hierarchy or you're younger than some of those heroes that you had. And the reasons for that can be multiple and 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 very many. I think, you know, transparency and, and good communication appears very important. But I think thinking about it ahead of time and somehow maybe creating, um, you know, a clear indication that within those timelines, things need to be delivered and why we agreeing to participate on that project. If the things are not, then, you know, no one can have a sort of hard feelings if the book just proceeds without that chapter or so on. But I think that this is, this is for sure a really difficult one because it can kind of, if, if things are not thought through and some of those scenarios occur and they are not handled in the best way, Certain, you know, like professional relationships can can suffer on this, and people can have hard feelings towards each other, and so on. So, in that sense, it's it it can be quite challenging. Yeah, and I think a lot of that also, um, if you would compare it to, I, I'm a firm believer that you need to be willing to walk away from anything in life, mm-hmm. because otherwise it can turn into a toxic thing. Yeah, right? if you're for some reason not willing to walk away from a person that you once used to love, <laughs> right? But be- if it, the relationships become toxic, I think you should always, because I think it also improves the relationship, right? Because both, are, if both of you are willing to walk away, it actually means that in an edited volume, it means that both of you will be committed to the relationship to make it work as well. So it has a different side of the coin. And I find that like little things like setting expectations from the start, having a starting document that we will all commit to. So say whether they be deadlines or we're all going to work with these definitions, we're all going to research these aspects. And then if it doesn't work out, no hard feelings. Mm, Look, the love was once there, now (laughs) it's not there anymore. Let's see if maybe our love can flourish later on again. Yeah, but I think that this is under the, you know, very kind of hopeful assumptions. I think I saw that, you know, not working time and time again. Um, But I think that the points that you made at going back, because I promised that we're going to finish on a positive note, which is we kind of pointed out hopefully to some of the solutions or some of the checkpoints that are good to take on board. I think for sure, um, one of the things I think that makes uh, our 
working relationship, but also our friendship really work, uh, make work uh, with Willem is that we both quite OCD kind of organized people. And I think that... Speak for yourself. <laughs> and no. I think that that actually works quite well for edited volumes when you have a lot of structured, a lot of kind of guidelines, yep. when you kind of follow up on things on a fairly regular basis, where you kind of keep that engagement of the contributors. So I think that's a good thing. Yep. On good practice or, or general, just also positive. Um, I think that, you know, there are also opportunities, depending how the edited volume comes to life, because sometimes you have call for papers and you already have a certain submissions and things are fairly developed. So maybe some other things um, of the, some other of the challenges that we mentioned are not applicable here. But also if you kind of have a creative freedom in the sense that you invite who you want to work with, that also is a yeah. really, really nice aspect of this because it kind of gives you a chance to work with all the people that you really want to work with for all the different reasons. So, yeah. yeah. Um, And I think in like, in like trying to, because uh, you're funny that we should start with the negative because it kind of made me feel like, do I even like it? But I think doing like an edited volume has its struggles and its perils and it's a long project. But I think if, you know, I really enjoy it. It's because it's really, to a certain extent, one of the very few moments where we're actually engaged in team science. Yeah. It's not just about you. You're part of a bigger project. You're writing together. And it's also about the way you set it up. So I would always suggest having at least one workshop where you come together. Yeah. Of course, there can be mitigating circumstances of the climate, travel, cost, all these differences. They need to be taken into account. But if possible, come together, sit, talk about the text, make it come to life. And of course, you can do that online and in a hybrid setting. But I find that's really, really useful to, to bring people together and to actually not make it this distant thing of like, oh yeah, I'm also working on this book that really doesn't spark any happiness in me. But um, I think that's what it is that I, and then we both probably, um, and we kind of going over time. So listeners, forgive us. Last, we will try to wrap it up. I think my main thought is that um, if anyone would at any point look on over the last two, three years of my publication list, you will see that I think with exception maybe of one or two, All of them are co-written. And that is to say that, yes, any type of form of collaborative work has its challenges. But I think that the benefits, at least for me personally, really, um, you know, sort of tilted the balance of the scale because it doesn't. It, it's not anymore this lonely thing, this sort of thing that you are only with your thoughts It actually sparks joy. It brings a lot of a uh, lot of sort of fun times and enjoyment of work. So, so I think that maybe I should have rephrased it differently. It shouldn't be that we started with negatives, but we started with some challenges, some good points to reflect on. Yeah. But it definitely is a good experience. And with that long, for long sure. monologue, I thank you, Willem, for today, um, and to our listeners to staying with us so long. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been the Stack Public Procurement Podcast. This was the Stack, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestackpodcast.com. 